morning, everybody. Welcome to Restoration. It's great to be with you all this morning. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here. And whether you are a longtime member, you're visiting with us for one of the first times, or you're watching online, we thank you all for being with us to worship uh, this morning. Um, if you've been here for a few weeks, you know we've been in a series uh, for Lent. If you have not been with us, that series is on the final words of Jesus from the cross. These different words that he said as he was dying on the cross. So Dan, a few weeks ago, uh, talked about, Father, forgive them to those who were there at the foot of the cross. And then he talked about the invitation to the thief on the cross to join him in paradise. Then Zach last week talked about the idea of adoption, the idea that on the cross, Jesus, even in that moment, is creating a new family. He gives Mary to John as his mother and John to Mary as her son, and he's creating a new family through his work on the cross. So we continue in that series this morning talking about the last words of Jesus on the cross, these very significant words. And we come to the one that I actually think is the most significant. Now, I don't just say that because I'm preaching this morning, but because this is the only one of these words of Jesus that's actually repeated by more than one gospel author. Our words this morning about forsakenness are repeated uh, both in Mark chapter 15, which you can look at, verses 33 and 34, or Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 and 46. Uh, you can look at either one this morning if you want to. Even in the Greek, they are almost identical. Uh, you can turn there and I'll pray for us and then I'll read uh, the one from Matthew 27. Fathers, we come to your word this morning as we reflect on this idea of Jesus being forsaken on the cross. We do ask that your spirit would do the work this morning. Uh, that I would give which, uh, this message that I feel like you've given me, but that ultimately you would apply it to our hearts in the ways in which glorify and honor you. That whatever is true this morning, from what I say, Father, that you would apply it to our hearts to make us more and more like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. So I'll be reading from Matthew 27, uh, verses 45 and 46. The passage from Mark, I believe, will be up on the screen. Either one is fine. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Throughout the history of the church, this has commonly been called the cry of dereliction. Another way to say that might be the cry of abandonment. Jesus is quoting from Psalm 22 here, which begins with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. And it's been considered incredibly significant by the church throughout its history. Uh, one of the composer Johann Sebastian Bach's longest works was called St. Matthew Passion. This is a two to three hour long symphony where he puts much of Matthew chapter 26 and chapter 27 to music. 
And throughout that performance, if you watch it, quotes from Jesus, lines from Jesus are given special significance in the performance, as you can imagine. They have a special singer who sings those lines from Jesus. And then during those lines from Jesus, string music plays sort of over and above it. Some, uh, I made a joke in the first service, I don't really know, uh, music is not my forte. So I don't know what to call music critics, music people that study music. I was told it's uh, musicologists is the technical term. People who study music call these moments with Jesus halos. They call what Bach did with this string music over these moments of Jesus speaking, these halos. And the goal of those halos is that the audience would recognize that something really significant is happening when Jesus speaks. They're intended to communicate a weight. They're intended to communicate glory to Jesus's words. And Jesus has over 20 lines in this particular symphony. And every single time he speaks and these strings play in the background. Every time but once in this long symphony and that's at this moment at this moment when jesus cries eli eli lemma sabachthani my god my god why have you forsaken me there is no halo there is no string music at that moment the listener is left to contemplate the weight of jesus forsakenness and that begs the question then for the listener and for us this morning, why is this so meaningful? Why is this phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is it so significant? Why should we reflect on it? Because when I think about the idea of being forsaken, that's not something I typically would want to reflect on. It's kind of an awkward scene, right? You can imagine the disciples who have been with Jesus for all these years of ministry, sitting there on the cross, wondering what's happening, but having seen the way that Jesus interacts with God, his father, throughout his ministry, and now he's crying out to God about asking why he's forsaken. It's the kind of scene you would want to turn your eyes away from. It's one of those awkward moments that you're thinking, why, why would I reflect on this, this strange moment? But then at the same time, Fleming Rutledge, who we've quoted several times through this series, Fleming Rutledge says, if we had one saying of Jesus on the cross, this is the one to have. So there's this tension between something that's difficult to reflect and deal with, but yet something that seems incredibly significant. How is that? Well, I want us to see this morning that there's more happening in this moment than it seems on the surface. In fact, this moment may be, if not the most, one of the most significant moments in human history. So we're gonna keep it simple this morning. Two questions, what's happening here and why is it significant? Let's look first at what's happening. The text itself doesn't give us directly much to work with. We'll look kind of backwards, what happened before, and then afterwards, what is said about it after. So we've read about Jesus' life up to this point. If you've read in these Gospels, you know his life and the things he's said and done. 
You probably believe, if you've read those things, that this punishment of death on a cross was unjust. We haven't seen Jesus do anything wrong. We haven't seen him doing anything deserving of punishment from human authorities, much less deserving of abandonment from his father God. In fact, it seems like if we've read closely, Jesus has the most intimate, the closest relationship with God of anyone that we've ever seen. He appears to spend time with God regularly. He calls him father. He is a supernatural power from God that he uses for the sake of other people for good. He seems to talk about a mission that he has from God, and he seems to imply that that mission was communicated directly from God. And then there are even several times where Jesus refers to himself as God. But then he also distinguishes that, and he says, God, my father, and then he talks about himself as God, the son. So there are a, there is a significant relationship that exists between God hit the Father and God the Son. So why all of a sudden, in this moment of impending death, does Jesus cry out to God and ask why he's been forsaken and ask why he's been abandoned? Well, a lot of people have offered theories as to why he would have cried out like this at this moment. One of those is that he is expecting help from God and not receiving it. That's, if you read a couple verses down, that's what the crowd around him thinks, right? They misinterpret Jesus's words and they think that he's calling for Elijah, the Old Testament prophet. Elijah was known as the prophet that would help in times of need. And so some people believe that Jesus is crying out. He expects help from God. He expects God to intervene or God to send someone like Elijah to intervene, to rescue him from the cross. That's not happening. And so Jesus cries out. But does that make sense of what we've seen Jesus say about his death up to this point? Well, if, if we look closely at the Gospels, it seems that Jesus has communicated over and over again that he expects to die this way. He expects to suffer unjustly, to go to his death in this way. So if his expectation has been to die in this way, why would he be expecting help on the cross in this moment? So that answer doesn't seem to be right. Others have suggested that this is Jesus's crying out to create a perception that he's being abandoned or forsaken in this moment, that he's attempting to set some higher uh, example for people to follow, that in this moment and in his crying out, he becomes the greatest example of suffering and forsakenness and injustice and rejection that we should strive towards, follow Jesus in, in the way that he lives this out. But has Jesus at this point in the Gospels seemed to have any interest in offering a false perception of what's happening or a false perception of himself? Up till now in the Gospels, has he seemed to describe himself primarily as an, just a great example for us to follow? Well, I don't think so. So that answer seems to fall short as well. So then what is the answer? Why is Jesus in this moment crying out on the cross 
in forsakenness, in abandonment. Well, we need to look at some of the things that Jesus has said about his death, because not only did he predict his own death, did he anticipate his own death in this way, but he also indicated that his death had a purpose. His death was going to accomplish something. Just a few verses, John 10, Jesus says, The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. John 12, Jesus says, Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? No, for this purpose I came to this hour. Mark 10, Jesus says, The Son came to give his life as a ransom for many. Those are only a few of the examples, but it's clear that Jesus saw not just that he was going to die, but that his death was going to do something. His death was going to accomplish a purpose. Now we know that Jesus had this intimate relationship with God. He called him Father. He spent time with him. We know that Jesus predicted his own unjust suffering and death. We know that he believed that suffering and death was going to accomplish a purpose. So then we come to this moment with that knowledge. What's happening here in this moment of abandonedness and forsakenness? Well, I think if we take what we learned before, then what we see here is that Jesus is not experiencing something that was unexpected, but rather something that he had never experienced before. What we know, and what Christians have believed through the centuries, is that at this moment, what Jesus is experiencing is the Father turning away from him for the first time. And the reason for that is that this is the moment where Jesus is taking on the sin of the world onto himself. It's the only explanation for why the Father, who we've seen all of this example of the depth of their relationship, why the Father would turn his back on his Son in this moment. And it's moments like this where we need to remember that God is both loving and just. God absolutely hates sin because sin is the opposite of his goodness. And sin is an infection in the world. Sin is attempting to undo, to corrupt and destroy everything good that God's created. And so a just God has to reject and turn away from sin. That's the only explanation for why a loving God would turn away from his perfect son and forsake him in this moment is that at this moment, Jesus had become sin. This is all over the New Testament. We looked before this moment at what the Bible said. Now we'll look after. All over the New Testament, the explanation from Christians, Jesus' followers and disciples, was that this moment is when Jesus took on the sin of the world. The Apostle Paul says, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. The Apostle Peter says, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. The Apostle John says he is the payment for our sins. The author of Hebrews says Christ was offered to bear the sins of many. Every New Testament author explains this moment the exact same way. This is when the sin of the world was placed on Jesus. 
That explains Jesus' shock. This is the first time he's experienced the weight of sin on himself. This is the first time his father has turned away from him. Now this is worth a quick aside. This has become very common to stay here that this way of thinking that Christians have embraced throughout the centuries, this is actually a form of divine child abuse. It's a popular argument these days. The argument goes like this. God says he loves the son, but then he places all this sin on Jesus, sin that he didn't deserve, sin that he didn't do, and then he abandons him and he leaves him to die. That's child abuse. I think an answer to that is to remember that Jesus himself has also claimed to be God. God the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit had existed in relationship for all time. This wasn't God the Father's plan. This was God's plan. And that includes Jesus the Son. This is his own plan. Because of his love... This is what was required. This was his plan. I think it's important to remember that when we hear some of these arguments. And that's important to remember the opposite side. Not only is God perfectly just, he's also perfectly loving. A just God demands a payment for sin. A loving God provides that payment. Jesus' cry of forsakenness in this moment is both the most just thing and the most loving thing that's ever happened in human history. Sin is rightly punished, but that allows love to be extended to everyone. And this answers our second question. Why is it significant? It's significant because Jesus is taking at this moment the sin of the world on himself. He's being forsaken, but that breaks the power of sin and death in the world and in you. The sin of the world, your sin and my sin, is placed at this moment on Jesus And it's paid for by his death. So when God turns away from Jesus on the cross, he is turning towards you. In this moment, he's turning towards you and I in love. And so the loving way that the father has always looked at his son, his perfect, obedient son, the loving way that God has always looked at him is now the way he looks at you. This is why this moment's so significant. Our sin is exchanged for Jesus' righteousness. His abandonment, excuse me, our abandonment is exchanged for his sonship and his acceptance. And so you and I are now welcome in the name of Jesus into the loving arms of the Father. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, this is what John said about him. He said, to all who receive Jesus, to all who believe in his name, 
He gives the right to become children of God. That's this moment. This is the moment where God turns from Jesus to invite you into his family. So this morning, don't ignore Jesus' cry of forsakenness because it's for you. Jesus was forsaken so that you and I could be accepted. He cried for you. He was forsaken for you. He died for you. And so let Jesus invite you and welcome you into the arms and family of his Father this morning. Let's pray. Fathers, we prepare to come to the table. Let us be reminded of this powerful moment, this moment that we would rather turn away from and not think about and not not rest in is the very moment where we should do that. It's the moment where we should fight to keep our eyes on the cross, to hear this cry of forsakenness because it's the cry that without Jesus, it's the only cry we would have. But because of Jesus crying out, we don't have to. We're no longer forsaken. So as we come to this table and this meal, remind us of that. In your name we pray. Amen.